Good morning, everyone. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, be able to bring this morning's message. And uh, as Pastor Chris said, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. But first, I'd like to fill you in on something. I've decided recently to embark on a physical fitness plan to... uh, I think now is the, the time. Obviously, I'm not getting any younger. And I've tried to do this in the past. Had some success, but have not been able to endure to push through. So this time, I've, I've made some mental notes because I want to succeed. I think one of the things I need to understand is purpose. Because if you think about it, there's very few things in life that require perseverance, hard work, diligence, commitment that will come to fruition without an understanding of an overarching purpose that helps push and move you along. I've jotted down some goals. My initial goal is to run a 5K before the end of the year. There's probably some runners in here thinking that's not much of a goal. Trust me, for it is, it's fairly lofty goal, because I don't run today. Although I must say, my initial goal was to run a 10K race, and I excitedly shared that goal with my wife, who then inquired if my life insurance policy was current and up-to-date. So I thought at that time I might want to scale it back a little bit, so... We arrived at a, at a 5K before the end of the year. I think accountability is important for anyone who's working towards something to hold us accountable, to encourage and ensure that we're following through on commitments. And lastly, I think training partners. Isn't it wonderful to go through something, a challenge with other individuals, particularly those maybe who are at the same place that we are? But perhaps even better is those who have much more experience than us and can provide tips and guidance on how to train well. And I start out with this idea of my story with physical training because I think there's a tremendous parallel when we think about spiritual training or spiritual fitness. And I think the Bible helps us in that endeavor And it helps us in this way because the Bible, when you think about the New Testament, the way Jesus taught in parables and stories, sometimes it's difficult for us to grasp spiritual principles, abstractions, so to speak. But we can see things in real life. Jesus does this in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the sower, or perhaps more accurately, the parable of the soils. And what does that describe? It, it shows us that we see how people respond differently to hearing the word of God. Tragically, in that first soil, Jesus says the word of God is sown, but that word of God lands along the side of the road that's been beaten down, and it's hard, and the seed can't germinate. And tragically, we see people that hear the word of God, and it comes in one ear And at the others, there's no response because the enemy comes in and takes it away. 
The second soil is the word of God lands in the rocky place. And we see people have a tremendous response to God. But just as quickly as that response came on, they fall away. And then there's seed, the word of God that is sown. But it says the cares of the world choke it out. Literally, the thorns and weeds prevent growth from occurring in the last soil is the good stuff. The soil that allows the word of God to work in our hearts and bring forth a bountiful harvest. Paul does this as well quite a bit. In Ephesians chapter 6, he's trying to convey that our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual realm. And he says it's really against the spiritual forces of wickedness. So how do you fight? How do you combat something like that? And in Ephesians chapter 6, he presents some garments that we are to wear to fight that spiritual battle. And we can see and we can resonate with that. We're to put on the full armor of God. We're to gird up our loins with biblical truth. To literally wear the breastplate of righteousness. To put on the helmet of salvation and yield or wield the sword of the Spirit. But when you think about metaphors of spiritual principles, I think the most common one we see throughout the New Testament as describing a race, uh, the Christian life is that of a race. We see this over and over again. Paul in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9 says that everyone is in a race, even unbelievers. But unbelievers are running apart from any relationship with God and their prize that they will receive is a corruptible prize. But we run in a different way, a different race, and our prize is incorruptible. Paul challenges the Galatians. Chapter 5, he says, you were, past tense, running so well. Basically, what happened? Why are you leaving this The idea of grace and moving under a works-based salvation. Paul does it right before he knows he's about to be martyred in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have either run the race or I finished the course and I have kept the faith. You can almost symbolically picture the Apostle Paul knowing he's going to be martyred here shortly, you know, running across the finish line, sticking out his chest and saying, I have run the race while I have finished. Well, this morning, I'd like us to glean some exhortations, some biblical truth on how we too can run this, quote, Christian race race better. And for that, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, although we'll spend most of our time in chapter 12, the first few verses. And as you are turning there, I'd like to ask some probing questions to all of us, me included. Do you consider yourself to be spiritually fit? And if so, what spiritual disciplines, right? Training involves discipline. What spiritual disciplines or daily spiritual exercising are you employing? And perhaps maybe a a tougher question would be, for those around you, would they describe you as being spiritually fit? 
Because my goodness, when I see someone who works out who's physically fit, I can say, that person is physically fit. And I think that same truth carries forward into the spiritual realm. We can see people who are living their life based on the Word of God, prioritizing Christ in all things. Let's read the text. Chapter 11, verse 39 says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and leave, lose heart. We're diving into a new book, so let me just spend a, a minute on setting the context here of the writer of which we don't know who it is, perhaps the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a group of Jewish believers. And the state of these Jewish believers could be characterized, at least their spiritual fitness level, would be they were spiritually lazy. They were spiritually unfit. Let me just quickly turn and read out of Hebrews chapter 5, basically a summary of where they stood in their spiritual fitness level. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, Concerning him we have much to say. Him is Jesus. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. They have somehow begun to turn off or tune out of the word of God. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. There's another metaphor describing Christian spiritual maturity of that of an infant, a baby, with an adulthood. He says, but in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. As so we arrive at Hebrews chapter 12, and it's almost as if the writer is kind of putting spiritual smelling salts underneath these believers, noses, and saying, get back in the race and run, and run the race well. Let's look and see what the writer exhorts them on how they can run the race better. The first thing I want to say is the last part of verse 1 is we need to remind ourselves we are indeed in a race. It says, you let us run 
with endurance the race that is set before us. That word race in the original is agona, which unfortunately we get the word agony from. It also says we are to run with endurance. So we're beginning to see a caricature of this race that we are to run. It is a long race. It is a difficult race. It can be painful at times. I think the key word there is set before us at the end of verse 1. And you need to understand and view your race as if the Lord Jesus Christ has mapped out a specific race, a specific path, that each of us are to run. And the keys, I think, in running our race is to stay in our own lane. And we're not a, it's not a race where we compete against each other. In fact, one commentator, Ken Hughes, on commenting on this idea that each of us have had a race path marked out by the Lord Jesus Christ writes this. I find it helpful. We each have a specific course mapped out for us, and the course for each runner is unique. Some are relatively straight, some are all turns, some seem all uphill. Some are a flat hiking path. All are long, but some are longer. But each of us can finish the race marked out for us. I may not be able to run your course, and you may find mine impossible, but I can finish my race And you can finish yours. As we run this race, and and it's unquestionable that we will run into some difficult times. But the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, because the writer is saying, hey, you need to produce, run with endurance. How do we get endurance? James chapter 1 says that trials and the testing of our faith come our way with the sole purpose to produce endurance, or perhaps to produce spiritual stamina. I also see in verse 1 here, the first part, some motivation to run. Don't we all need motivation to be disciplined and training and running this race? It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. That word cloud there is not a one singular cloud. We're speaking metaphorically here. It's actually designed to represent a large throng of people. So the question is, who are these witnesses that are, we could glean from? And we see them in Hebrews chapter 11. Romans 15, 4 says this, we, for whatever was written earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. We can learn quite a bit of others who have run the race before us. You know, sometimes I think we may hear this passage preached in that the individuals in chapter 11 have run the race and now sticking with this imagery are in the stands cheering us on, witnessing to us. And I don't think that's probably the correct interpretation. Obviously, it's a Metaphor, but it's probably some theological concerns. I think it's best to think of it that to look at their lives bearing witness to us. To see, once again, how they ran and how they finished well. 
There's 18 of them mentioned by name, although verse 35 and 36 says there's many others. You know, when I think about my own physical training and some of the garb that they have out now, all the fancy apparel, the good news is to run this race of faith and to run it well, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us the only thing we need. You'll see a word, two words listed 21 times in chapter 11. Those two words are by faith. That's the only equipment we really need to run our race that God has sent out. Let's take a quick peek at some of them. How did they run? What could we learn? What can we glean from them? In verse 5, we witness Enoch. Genesis chapter 5 says that Enoch walked with God continually. His whole life was based on having a relationship and communing with God, and God loved him for it. Verse 7, we witness Noah. It's difficult to run the Christian race in our culture today. Noah is a witness to us that God will reward faithful obedience to taking a stand for biblical truth, for biblical morality. Noah did. Verse 8, we encounter Abraham. Sometimes paths that we take will have some twists and turns and we'll be asked to step out in faith. Abraham can teach us that to step out in obedience, even though we don't know what the future holds, the future may be very uncertain. Verse 22, we see Joseph. Boy, could we learn a lot from the life of Joseph. The adversity, the tragedy, what his family, his brothers had did to him. But through it all, Joseph chose not to take revenge. He understood the sovereignty of God. He didn't ask the questions of why me. He just ran the race of faith and he ran it well. Lastly, in verse 31, we see an individual by the name of Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute before she embraced the God of Israel. She's listed here in Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith. I guess the NFL has Canton, Ohio. MLB has Cooperstown, New York. And once you know, Christians have Hebrews chapter 11. But there she is. Someone who had a very checkered, sinful past. She's listed here. Interestingly enough, she's also listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the very lineage of Jesus Christ. So don't, as you seek to run this race, please do not think that your past sins disqualify you from running the race and running the race well. So we need to know we're in a race. We have lots of runners to observe, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, people we interact with, people who are running well. Let's look at some specific things that we can do to improve our spiritual fitness. I see in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12, it says to lay aside every encumbrance. 
And it's interesting to what the writer does here because we're not talking sins. You know, he parses that out. We're going to talk sins in a little bit. But he says every encumbrance. And these are not essentially sinful activities. Technically, the, the word means weight. Something to weigh you down. The, in the original, it's ankos, of which we get the word oncologist from to study, unfortunately, tumors. So the imagery here I see is running a race, but showing up to a marathon race with a heavy coat, baggy pants, big old hiking boots, and a backpack with tons of stuff in it. Not going to run, run very well. The writer is exhorting us, some things need to be put aside, be taken off if we are to run the race well. What are these encumbrances and weights in our life? I, there's stuff. Entertainment, recreation, our career. Once again, not, not bad things. Some of that stuff it can be very good. Needed things. Hobbies, sports, back to entertainment, TV, social media. Although maybe now we've crossed over into sin, sin so I'll stop here. So the question I think we, when it comes to these encur- encumbrances is, and I fall into the same trap, we limit the amount of questions and it impacts our ability to run the race well. It impacts our spiritual fitness. We literally just ask one question, is it moral or is it sinful? And if it's not, full speed ahead. I think we need to ask more questions. We need to ask ourselves, does these activities and the time that I'm investing in it, is it helping me grow in my walk with Christ? Is it edifying? How much is enough? You know, it's interesting. I think if you look at anybody who's training for something, athletes or great musicians who is dedicated and focused to what they're working towards. You know, they don't make decisions based on choosing between good and bad. Essentially what they're doing, they're choosing between what's better and best for them to achieve their goal. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling us to run our race of faith and to run it well. And that can only be done if we make better choices prioritizing the word of God in our life. He then goes on, we can improve our spiritual fitness by letting go of the sin that so easily entangles us. So stick with the imagery here in that culture. If they wanted to run a race or move quickly from one place to another, they would pick up their robe and they would tuck it, gird up their loins and tuck it into the belt so they could run well. And what he says here is that there is a sin, definite article, that so easily entangles us. It's led to some interesting interpretations of what is this sin. If you have a King James Version, you might be familiar with the term. As they translate it, you're a besetting sin. And I think there's some truth to that. The sins that I struggle with may not be the sins that you do. And there are certain sins that will cling to us more closely. 
The writer's saying we won't be able to run. We will become entangled unless we deal with them. Some say it could be the sin is actually a lack of faith. Right? whole context here that the writer is saying is uh, based on faith. And if you think about it, all sin, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, the common denominator, is basically a lack of faith, a lack of trust in God. From the very first sin in the garden to the sins that we deal with today, we can't allow sins to entangle us. The word literally means to ambush. It can come quickly. And we can get tangled quickly. And so we think about all sins start in the mind. And that's where they need to be addressed. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So whether it's pride, greed, lust, worry, gossip, anger, bitterness needs to be addressed easily, or the Bible says it will entangle us and inhibit us from running. Whereas James says, you know, this idea of sin basically incubates. Because because lust, when it's conceived, here's another metaphor, what's it do? When we don't address it, it gives birth to sin. You know, John Piper uh, summarizes this, this exhortations here in terms of taking off these weights and addressing the sin before it entangles us. This is what he writes. He says, you can get back in the race today. How? By throwing off weights and sins. That means getting things out of your life that make you more worldly-minded and putting things in your life that make you more heavenly-minded. It means praying without ceasing, hiding God's word in your heart and meditating on it day and night, exhorting one another every day, taking up your cross daily, reckoning yourself dead to sin, putting to death the deeds of the body, plucking out the eye of lust, fleeing fornication, cutting off the hand of covetousness, yielding your members as instruments of righteousness, presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, putting on the armor of God, Resisting the devil and taking every thought captive to obey Christ. And this is the important how he closes. The great danger is that Christians will begin to coast instead of run and and fiddle instead of fight. The Bible here says in verse 2 how we can also improve our running ability, our spiritual fitness is if we fix our eyes on Jesus. Literally means to gaze intently at Jesus. I think that's helpful, particularly as we're running this difficult race, to take our eyes off ourselves, to take our eyes off of things, and place them where they need to be. You know, every runner really needs to focus on something when they're running and training. And why is it important for us to focus on the Lord when we're running this race? He gives us some reasons here, some very good reasons. One, Jesus is the author of our faith. He's the one who started our race. 
He's the one who's mapped out the course. He's designed it for us. It says he's the perfecter of faith. He's the one who will enable us to finish the race well. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 1, where he says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who what? Began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 2 goes on to say, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? Let me say that again. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? You know, you read that, it's one of those statements, it sounds contradictory. Joy, cross, the text goes on to say, endured the cross, despising the shame. Verse 3, it says, consider him. That word consider means, it's the only time used in the New Testament, it means to calculate. It's a, a mathematical term, to really consider what Jesus went through in his race. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners. And it says, why? It says, so that we may not grow weary and lose heart. And I think the key in understanding how Jesus had joy in going through that experience is he understood his race. He understood his purpose. And as we run our race, back to the motivation... We need to understand what God is calling us to do in our race. The text goes on to say that, the end of verse 2, that Jesus has finished his race. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember, we're not running this race in vain. We will be rewarded throughout all eternity in the way we run our race. But I got to thinking, you know, Jesus understood what he was going through and could go through all that, but yet somehow in his mind it was joyful because he knew what he would be able to accomplish. Let me just quickly read to you. I think this is brought out crystal clearly in John chapter 17 really just a few hours before the Lord's crucifixion where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's the last words he's giving to them. Uh, John chapter 17 is known as the high priestly prayer. Listen as I read this to Jesus understanding exactly what his purpose was. He says, these things Jesus spoke after lifting up his eyes to heaven. Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And now glorify me together with thyself, Father. Finished his work. He finished his course. Because it's interesting, back to Hebrews chapter 12, back to that phrase, 
it says that our race, end of verse 1, is set before us. And then it says, for speaking of Jesus, his, who for the joy set before him. The same type of wording, it's just that the God the Father had outlined the race that Jesus was to run. The Lord has outlined the race we are called to run. You know, when you think about it, though, uh, spiritual fitness, I think, ultimately comes down to choices, making the right choices. Now, I've been told, and I'll emphasize that again, I've been told that when people run marathons, they hit a a thing called a, a wall. I don't know, somewhere like mile 12, mile 13. I'm hoping when I run my 5K, I, I don't hit the wall about 100 yards into it. But there's a wall where you just, you feel like you just cannot take another step forward. You just cannot move on. And it's that time that they say it is critical to focus on your purpose to focus on something that will allow you to push through that difficult time. I am quite certain that many of us here are perhaps in that race spiritually or hitting a wall or running up a hill that it just don't seem like you can continue on. And for those times, I want to just leave you with three words. Three simple words. Those three words are... Jesus is better. That's all you have to remember. Jesus is better. And I can say that from this text. Because if I was going to sum up, sum up the entire book of Hebrews, that's the summary. Jesus is better. For these people who somehow used to be running well, but became spiritually lazy, became spiritually unfit. What the writer does, and Pastor Chris started out, you know, we come to Hebrews chapter 12, it's a great exhortation, but he's taking 11 chapters to basically dismantle every issue, every item, every misconception that they had that was preventing them from running their race well. In chapter 1, he says, and Chris read this in verse 3, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name. Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. He is greater than any angelic, spiritual, heavenly thing they could comprehend. A writer is saying Jesus is better. He moves forward in chapter 3. Jesus is much better than Moses. Chapter 4. Jesus has instituted a much better priesthood. In fact, chapter 5, he is the ultimate, he is the true, he is the better high priest. In chapter 8, he moves on to, he instituted 
a better covenant. Also, in chapter 8, he is a better mediator. He is the only mediator between God and man because in Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus offered himself, which is a better sacrifice. When those tough times come, remember, Jesus is better. The world is going to pull you in a different direction, try to take you off path, inhibit you from running well. But the Bible here is telling us that we need to recognize we're in a race. There's lots of people we can look at for motivation on how to run well. But we will need to remove excess baggage, the weights that inhibit us from running freely, from running well, and address sin quickly before it entangles us and prevents us from running. I'll just leave with one question and close out. And it's uh, a question that you see in chapter 2 where the writer talks in the midst of this greatness of what Jesus has done for us. He leaves a fairly probing rhetorical question and the question is this. How can we neglect such a great salvation? It's my prayer this morning that none of us will neglect the salvation that the Lord has provided us and that we will run our race well. And like the Apostle Paul, we can say that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, and I have finished well. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize what you've done. And Jesus, you are better. You're better than anything that this world can offer. Lord, some of us are on a path that is very difficult. Some of us may have seemingly headed in the opposite direction or have stopped running or have hit a wall or reached a point Symbolically, Lord, it's, it's just so uphill that we can't move forward. For those individuals, Lord, we pray that you would answer prayers, health needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Lord, we pray that as we read this passage, there would be at least one encumbrance, one activity in our life that we could set aside. Lord, teach us on how to deal with sin, to confess it, to address it, not to allow it to give birth and to so easily entangle us. Lord, we're just so thankful for the race, even though it's difficult, that you've provided for us. We pray as we leave here that you would give us a renewed sense of energy, increase our capacity, to run well, increase our endurance, increase our focus, our commitment on you and the word of God. And we want that bountiful harvest that we know that the word of God can bring. We know you are better. And for that, we say thank you. We love you. And amen.